Yes. Good morning and wahoo wah. My name is Cindy Frederick, and I'm the Associate Vice President for Alumni and Parent Engagement at the University of Virginia, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this morning's More Than the Score. More Than the Score is sponsored by the University Advancement's Office of Engagement in partnership with the Alumni Association. And the Alumni Association works very hard with their team to set up our space and to create this welcoming environment. So special thanks this morning to that team. I'm also pleased to announce that our refreshments today for the season have been underwritten by two generous donors. While they do not want public recognition, I do want to thank them for helping create also a very welcoming sense of community. In my opinion, food always makes it better. As we know in life, it takes a village to do what we do, and so thanks for everyone who has helped us make this possible. A few housekeeping tips before we get started. Um, we are video taping this, so please silence your cell phones. And normally we have the paper surveys. You will be getting those in an email after the presentation, and if you would kindly fill those out. We do take your feedback and suggestions very seriously, and we really appreciate that. And so now on to today's discussion on the science of athletic performance and what brilliant timing for today's topic. Last night I attended UVA's Night with the Champions. Who, who, who joined me? Yeah. To celebrate the amazing accomplishments of our 2019 basketball team. As the student athletes came to the stage with their coaches, trainers, and educators, I was simply overcome with emotion, tears coming down my face. It was that kind of, you know, what an amazing season, but all that just love and community um, was very touching, and so it was a special experience for me. And, what, and while I know that the student-athletes make it all happen, it takes a village. It takes a village of coaches and, and all the support team out there, and so I am just thankful to everyone. We today have a panel discussion uh, to talk about this topic, and Art Weltman will uh, serve as our moderator, but I do want to do a special shout-out uh, to one of my friends and colleagues, Susan Saliba. It was in Minneapolis in a hotel lobby that we were talking about the amazing season, and she was telling me all the work that she was doing, and I said, gosh, that has to be shared with our More Than the Score audience. So, Susan, thank you for that idea and for bringing this to us. So Art Weltman is the chair of the Department of Kinesiology at the Curry School of Education and Human Development. He is also a professor in the Department of Medicine. He joined UVA in 1985, and his research focuses on the effects of how intensity of exercise affects outcome measurements. He is a former intercollegiate athlete and since 1990 has served as the exercise physiology advisor for the Department of Athletics as well as a number of professional teams. Art is a graduate of Queens College of the City University of New York and earned his doctoral degree in kinesiology, exercise physiology from the University of Michigan. Please welcome Art and our panelists to More Than the Score. Thank you, Cindy, for the, that kind introduction. Um, 
Let me tell you a little bit about the format. We're going to try and stay around 40 minutes for the panel discussion. We have a bunch of academics on the panel, so we'll do the best we can. Um, and then uh, we'll have some uh, microphones uh, at the end of the panel uh, for questions from the audience. So there'll be people moving around the audience. If you have a question, just raise your hand and we'll get the mic to you. So let me introduce the distinguished panel, and I'll start at my far left. So uh, Jake Resch, Jake, you want to raise your hand? He's an assistant professor of kinesiology. He uses the latest technology to study sports-related concussion, including how to diagnose a concussion, the evidence-based consequences of um, one or more concussions, and when one can, what can be done to prevent concussion and return to sport. Uh, next to Jake is, is Joe Hart. Joe is an associate professor of kinesiology, and he uses advanced technology to assess muscle imbalances and is an expert in using science to determine an athlete's ability to return to play after sustaining an injury. Next to Joe is Kelly Pugh. Kelly is the associate athletic director for sports medicine and is the head athletic trainer for the UVA football team. We're fortunate to have Kelly. She's not usually available on game day, but because the, because the game's at 7.30 tonight, she was able to take time out of her morning schedule to join us. Uh, she's responsible for the day-to-day -day medical care of the football team while overseeing a staff of 20 other athletic trainers who provide care for the other athletic teams, so, all of whom are doing quite well um, this fall. Um, Cindy already introduced Sue. Sue's a professor of kinesiology. Um, she's currently working with colleagues in uh, the School of Engineering and Applied Science to develop algorithms using sensors to measure internal and external load and for injury prevention. Next to Sue is Mike Curtis. Some of you might have seen Mike last night. Uh, he's the head strength and conditioning coach for the 2019 NCAA champion men's basketball team. Um, and um, he applies internal and external monitoring to optimize performance and recovery. And next to uh, Mike is Jay Hurdle. Jay Hurdle is the Joe Geek Professor of Sports Medicine in the Department of Kinesiology. Uh, he uses wearable sensor technology to assess athletic movement biomechanics to optimize performance and prevent injuries in distance runners and in team sport athletes. So welcome to the panel. We're very fortunate to have them here. And let's get started. So uh, I'm going to start with Kelly. Um, in your role as the Associate Athletic Director for Sports Medicine, uh, can you comment on how UVA athletic teams use monitoring for readiness and performance? I think all student-athletes and coaches are looking for the next edge to improve their performance. Um, athletic trainers are responsible for the, the prevention, recognition, and treatment of injuries. And we've partnered with our strength conditioning staffs and sports nutritionists and sports psychologists to form a performance team. Um, and data analytics is, is the new tech that everybody's interested in and trying to monitor um, student athletes and get that extra edge. So those, those wearables tend to fall into two categories. One is, is measuring readiness, so your preparedness for activity. Um, so, and those are things that the, the student athletes providing subjective feedback um, what's their stress level? What's their fatigue level? How do they do on hydration this week? Um, and so 
Some examples of those types of technologies are WHOOP or Fatigue Science, which is a wristband that student athlete wears that then um, they rate their own feelings on those different levels and it can give them a readiness score. So the example on the picture on the left is a Fatigue Science output and the, the band that they would wear overnight to sleep in. And then Fusionetics is another program and Fit for 90 is another program. These are app-based programs where they can click on the muscles that are sore and rate their stress and things like that. And it also can report back to the sports medicine staff or the coaching staff of, of how they're feeling on a given day and how ready they are to train. The other categories of, of wearables are, tend to be more performance measures. They measure um, more objective things like heart rate and speed. Um, they use a combination of GPS and accelerometers and gyroscopes um, to, to measure the objective measures. Polar is a well-known company that does heart rate measures. Um, most runners have their own GPS watch at this point that also measures their heart rate. And then Catapult is by far the one of the biggest names in sports science measuring performance. And you can see they wear a, um, a, a shirt or the guys call it a bro um, that has the, the catapult unit in the back. Um, it's a small unit that has an accelerometer in it and, um, and GPS. And it spits out a ton of data, more than, than you can recognize. And I'm glad we have folks like, like Mike that can help us interpret all that data. Thanks, Kelly. And for those of you that are watching the UVA men's soccer team defeat Duke last night, you saw that when, um, when one of our athletes scored a goal and he ripped his shirt off in celebration, although he did get a yellow card for that. Um, <laughs> that, that device that, he, that you could see strapped to his chest was, was the catapult unit. Uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Mike for a second and say, you know, Mike, you were obviously an early adopter of technology. You've been using it your entire 10 years here before you came here. And obviously the team's had remarkable success over the entire 10 years, culminating with last year's national championship. Uh, can you talk a little bit about internal and external monitoring, load monitoring, and how you use these tools for designing an overall training program? Yeah, I'm, I'll expand on what Kelly uh, kind of introduced to you guys. So this technology, these tools, these devices, they all fall into two different categories. So uh, the first one would be internal load. Um, so internal load is basically a relative physiological and psychological load that we impose on those athletes. So we have to be able to measure those things. So when we talk about internal load, you can think about either the brain or organ systems within the body. So first of all, as she said, heart rate. You know, it's pretty familiar with that. But there are other things that we can look at aside from just the heart rate itself. There are other metrics. So things like TRIMP, um, which gives us a, a load parameter. So it's basically in its simple, simplest form, uh, it's going to be a heart rate or a heart rate zone multiplied by the duration that you spend in that time. It kind of gives you some uh, idea of what the intensity was uh, of that activity and how it affected you from a cardiovascular standpoint. Um, other than that, there's heart rate recovery. You know, how quickly are people recovering from a single bout, multiple bouts of intermittent activity? You know, so that can give you some insight as to is that person fatigued? Uh, are they fit at this moment? Or, or like I said, are they not recovering to the same stimulus the way that they were before? Um, and then there's heart rate variability. So that's basically uh, the interval between the RR intervals of the heartbeat 
And that gives you insight as well into fitness, but also some autonomic nervous system response. So if someone more shifted sympathetically, parasympathetically, these things give us insight as to how they're dealing with the stress that we're imposing on them. There are biomarkers. Um, so these are uh, chemical responses that we can look at just to see if there is, you know, how people are responding to the stress, once again, that we're imposing on them. Sometimes these things in our setting uh, can be a little bit costly and impractical, so we don't necessarily do very much of that in this setting, but it is present in a lot of professional settings. Um, and then we can kind of look at you know, the, uh, the brain. So how are these athletes actually perceiving the stress that we impose on them? So one of the most common ways is rates of perceived exertion, and we can measure those things by looking at a number that they give us based on a 1 to 10, 1 to 20 scale, and then we can take that and times it times the duration of the session, once again get another uh, measure of what the load was for that individual. Um, as it relates to strength training, I can ask what was the RPE for a particular exercise. So that has a correlation to a percentage of effort intensity for that particular exercise as well. And then, you know, subjective questionnaires, you talked about that. This is a qualitative measure. It gives us, it paints a picture for us. So what behaviors does this athlete have that are supportive or not supportive of our training process? So are you sleeping well? What's your mood? These things oftentimes stimulate a conversation between us. So we can look at data, but a lot of times you have to have an understanding of what is going on with the athlete outside of the five, six hours of the day that we spend with them. So these things are very important. I'm very long-winded, I'm sorry. Okay, um, but external load, all right? So these, in this case, you can think muscles, joints, tendons, things of that nature. So a couple different ways we can look at that. So uh, speed, output, acceleration goes back to what Kelly talked about with catapult units, other things like that. But in addition to that, there's so much technology. So in a weight room standpoint, if you were to come watch our training session, there are gadgets attached to the bars as they move. So we're getting readings of that force output that those athletes are doing individually. We can also say, instead of you should lift this weight, you should stay at this particular velocity zone because it is eliciting this physical adaptation specific to your needs. So that's where technology has taken us. So we can measure those things. So over time, we can look at tonnage, how much weight did you lift over a week, a year, and we can start to understand how is this athlete tolerating these loads over time. You know, in addition to that, time motion, catapult. I don't want to get too much into that. We'll probably talk about that uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Hurdle. Um, uh, but basically, that allows us to be able to see distance, running speeds, other things like that, and quantify those things. Um, and then there's a, a tool that we, we use quite regularly in basketball, which is to measure neuromuscular function, which is a force plate. So every time our athletes come in, they jump on that force plate. So we're utilizing that to look at a, some metrics to see if they're adapting to the stress that we're imposing on them. But it also gives us some insight as to if there's fatigue present and do we need to change something in our training process to make sure that we are optimally ready on game days. So you have all these things, and together they, they make up this process of athlete monitoring. So. When we take that data and then we start to pass it to these smart individuals, now we're talking about smart science. But at the end of the day, what we want is, you know, the question that, or the objectives that we have are to assess optimization and efficacy of our training, measure accumulation of stress, all right, measure physiological and psychological stress. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to use these things to better inform our process. And what I am telling the coaches and how we are doing our technical tactical work and our strength and conditioning work to make a better uh, 
training process so that on game day we are ready to perform. But we're also getting to a place now that these smart individuals are helping us and we are making sure that this data and research is allowing us to actually make correlations to what we think we're seeing from performance outcomes. Sorry, very long-winded. No, that was great. So <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you continue because I'm going to ask you a follow-up question. Because you have all these great data, but the basketball coaching staff has goals related to basketball, and you have goals related to strength and conditioning and making sure that the athletes aren't overtrained. So how do you interact with the coaching staff to make sure that both of those goals are accomplished? Well, I think anyone who is a gatekeeper for a lot of this information and data has to have some ability to uh, engage in coach speak. And uh, <laughs> thankfully, I, I, I was a former basketball player, so I have the ability to take some of this information and data and uh, relay it to the coach in such a, in such a way that he understands it in a basket, from a basketball perspective. You know, some people like reports, other things like that. Tony does not. He wants me to read the information, and we have a conversation every day as to what should practice look like from a volume, intensity, content standpoint. So much of our training process goes back to all this data that we, we collect. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know, Mike was a basketball player here at UVA and one of our kinesiology grads, uh, one of our great alums. So I'm going to throw it to Jay now because you've had experience using these tools with other sports. So can you comment on um, how you're applying the monitoring to sports like soccer and volleyball? Sure. So uh, I'll talk about soccer first. And um, what you see um, up here is uh, in the middle, you see the green field there, and you kind of see a line that um, tracked a player movement across an entire game. So you can see that that player played right wing, so they were going forward on offense and also back on defense. And that line is color-coded to exhibit um, different speeds at which they were moving during that game. So if any of you, you know, for example, watched um, any of the Women's World Cup games this summer, a lot of times when you would see a player subbed uh, off during the second half, they would put a little graphic on the screen that would say that she ran 5.8 miles during the, the time that she was in. Well, that type of information is um, being measured by a GPS unit um, that is um, wearable, like we, we've talked about before. And what you can do is you can not only track the distance, but also the speed and the velocity at which players are, are moving. So back when, when I was an athlete they, in basketball, they would always say, the tape never lies. Well, now the sensors never lie, you know, when it comes to things like effort and how often are players actually reaching their maximum velocity. Um, and we can then track players, not over the just over the course of a game, but also over the course of a season and see, you know, might there be some, some overtraining or burnout that, that's happening? Or, you know, is the athlete responding well and maybe they can actually be trained um, more intensely um, as well? On the far right there, you see a, a graph. Uh, um, this was based off of um, data from the UVA men's soccer team a few years ago that broke down um, what movements speeds players were actually moving at throughout the course of the season. So there's different bands there for walking, running, sprinting, jogging, and even standing because that happens during a game. And that just kind of gives us an indication of what those players are actually doing during the game, and that helps to inform the, the training principles. And what you end up seeing is the bottom line there is actually sprinting. So they actually spend the least amount of time sprinting 
uh, at near maximum velocity during a game, but spend much of their t- time running at um, submaximal uh, speeds. Um, we're also doing some things with the UVA volleyball team, uh, wearing a catapult, and we've got some uh, some graphs here that we pulled from a match that the uh, women's volleyball team played in last weekend. And in volleyball, one of the things that's really important is jump count. So in baseball, everybody talks about pitch count um, as being important to uh, protecting the, the arm of the, the pitcher. But um, with volleyball players, especially the frontline players doing a lot of maximum jumps during practice and games, we want to keep an eye on how many jumps they're doing and also what uh, percentage of those jumps are at near maximum. So, for example, one thing that we'll see up here is that these are our setters right here compared to our middle blockers. So the setter has lots of jumps, but they're almost all at sub-maximal efforts because that's the skill of, of setting, as opposed to the middle blockers who are trying to block the other team from spiking over the net. They are constantly making those jumps at maximum uh, type jumps. The other thing we can see with a sport like volleyball, which is obviously much more constrained than soccer when it comes to how far the players can move, um, we can take a look at what their movement demands are um, at different positions. So if you look over to the, the right there, those kind of little radar graphs indicate which direction of movement players are undertaking the most. And what we end up seeing is things like the defensive players, like the, the middle hitters, or the middle blockers, that, and the uh, uh, outside hitters, most of their intense movements are always going forward, going towards the net. But then you take a defensive player like the, the libero, who's in the back row, who's always trying to basically um, uh, bump that first uh, shot, they're constantly making side-to-side movements, much more so than the um, the front row players. So what we can use is to use that information to inform training of sports-specific movement demands. Thanks, Jay. So Jay mentioned the Women's World Cup, so I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout-out to the three ex-UVA soccer players, Becky Sauerbrunn, Morgan Bryan, and Emily Sonnet, who participated as members of that World Cup winning team, and to Steve Swanson, our head coach, who served as an assistant coach on that team as well. Um, so, Sue, yeah, uh, give them a shout out. Um, these athlete monitoring devices collect data continuously and provide an overwhelming amount of data. So, I know you've been working with colleagues in the School of Engineering and Applied Science to develop techniques to translate the data into a meaningful form for coaches. Um, how are you able to extract the data and try and put them in a, in a form that coaches can understand and help to guide sports safety or performance? Yeah, thanks, Art. The, uh, the real um, key here is that all of us have been working with people in the School of Engineering. That's really important. And for the young people that are out here, uh, if you're interested in this stuff, study math. Stay in math class, pay attention in math class, because that's really going to help you in the future. It's no longer just what, this is what my coach did. Um, It's completely changed. 
Um, so this engineering perspective and really how we deal with the data is really important. So when you take an engineer, they oftentimes will tell us, you know, we can put a sensor on anything. We can measure anything, but they don't oftentimes know exactly what they're measuring in terms of its meaningfulness. So they need people like us, people like Mike who can really work in the field, people like Kelly who are seeing the people who are injured every single day to really interpret that and identify the data sets and make them meaningful. So these information comes in and they're trying to pair it and put it into formulas that are really important and meaningful, but we have to identify the variables for them and kind of use that applied science to make sure that we're all on the same page with, with what we're doing. So this is an example of just a um, sequential query language, which is a, a computer language. We take what we've talked about a couple of times with uh, this catapult system, so the, the thing that is on their, their backs, and we're getting volumes and volumes of information. The catapult company has proprietary software called this AMS, or Athlete Management System, where they kind of try to project what we, they think that you need to know, similar to like a Fitbit or some of the other project or um, products that you might be familiar with, they'll have an output or a dashboard that they've decided that this is meaningful. So what we're trying to do is kind of do a, a combination where we're collecting um, tons and tons of information and it's coming into, you know, streaming in and just really trying to understand that. And then we're also asking the athletes to give us that qualitative information, their sleep hygiene, their nutrition, how they feel, things like that. But we also rely on all of the athletic trainers to talk about, you know, really what the injuries are looking at. That's something that's very specific to that particular person and may not be as important to, you know, the world at large. So we want to be able to understand the data that's coming in and really recognize and turn it into something that we're doing. So the algorithms that are developed are really kind of fed into these machine learning types of scenarios. So this is just an example where the, um, we'll work with the engineers in these really sophisticated programs. So for example, the data sets, we're talking about millions of, of data points. It, they're such big data sets that we have to have, you know, like the new data science center, um, the warehouse of storage is really kind of what we need to, to be able to do that. They, we help them identify positive and negative rewards in terms of the outputs that are coming in, and then we try to, um, you know, they let the, the machine algorithm learn. So it actually learns much like we as humans learn by um, letting the machine go. So we try not to influence with our bias of what we think how these relationships will occur, we let the machine actually learn itself. And we're able to see a lot of other things that we wouldn't necessarily have seen without that kind of stuff. Thank you, Sue. So you, you mentioned injuries, so we're going to segue to a different segment now and talk a little bit about how sports science can be used to keep athletes safe and recover from, from injury. And since it's a football Saturday, we'll talk about three of the more common football-related injuries, concussion, entry or cruciate ligament tear and heat-related illness. And I'm going to start with Jake, who does a lot of work in the area of concussion. Uh, can you talk about what a sports concussion is and, and how it's diagnosed? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So uh, I look at concussions as an issue of supply and demand. So there you just saw animation looking at an individual taking a hit. And upon that hit to the head, neck, or to the body, uh, the brain or the neurons within the brain deform. They stretch. Now, in a healthy state, we normally see an uh, influx of sodium and an efflux or exit of potassium from a neuron. 
Now, after a concussion, there's another uh, exchange of ions that occurs that includes calcium. So not only sodium enters the neuronal membrane, but also calcium. This is not the correct ionic flux. Now, in order to correct it, the brain needs energy. So we have an injury. The brain's demanding energy in order to recover. Unfortunately, at the same time as this neuronal stretch, we actually see diminished cerebral blood flow. By how much? By about 50%. And with that diminished blood flow, we see a diminished supply to meet the demand of the brain, which wants to heal. It tries to heal. So unfortunately, after about two minutes up to two hours following an injury, what happens is the brain effectively slows down and individuals become symptomatic while the brain slowly recovers over a period of about seven to 10 days. Now, one of the things I think it's really important to note, because we really don't hear about this in the media, is that this process, uh, concussion itself, tends to recover within 10 days for 90% of the individuals that have one. Uh, and I think that's important because, unfortunately, there are 10% that may have a longer recovery, which might be 30 days, 40 days, maybe longer. But that's, again, individual to the person that had the injury. So, again, when you think of concussion, think of supply and demand. So, in terms of like, how do you diagnose a concussion, uh, our research has really supported this idea of a multidimensional approach to the assessments. We don't have a gold standard right now. We do. Uh, have a loose gold standard, which is the physician's diagnosis, but depending on the expertise of the physician, they're worried about so many other things. Uh, so a concussion may not be uh, necessarily on the radar. However, we use a battery of tests in order to complement the physician's, the athlete trainer's expertise, such as computerized neurocognitive testing. Uh, you may have heard the word impact. That's one form of testing. Uh, we look at symptoms, which are self-reported, and it's the most accurate way to diagnose a concussion. Unfortunately, our athletes tend to underreport symptoms. They don't lie, so get that out of your head, right? They underreport symptoms uh, because they may not wait for it. Uh, so uh, they may not understand the significance of the injury, or they may not know the symptoms of the concussion. And the last piece is we look at balance. And what our research suggests is that uh, when we use these three tests, we have 100% uh, accuracy rate at depicting a concussed athlete when they're concussed. Now, where we're going here, and as Sue mentioned, with uh, we're collaborating with System Engineering, the Center, uh, Center of Applied Biomechanics, is really using our clinical expertise and the tools that we know are ground truth measures of concussion to inform technology to make this a better, uh, a be a more efficient way to diagnose injury. So, for example, uh, something you all have in your pockets, and you may have checked it already a couple times today, is your cell phone. We're working with system engineering to develop an application to detect the presence of a concussion just by the way an individual uses their phone, not doing anything by opening an application on their phone, literally how they pick up their phone, how long the phone stays dormant, the screen brightness, how many errors while they're texting. All these things may be indicators or signals to depict the presence of a concussion. And there you have a, a snapshot of uh, some of the variables that we take a look at uh, with individuals following a concussion. The last piece here, and I'm going to ask Art uh, to click the slide for me, is an uh, efficient way to approach the problem of those three tests that I mentioned earlier. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes per athlete in order to assess uh, an athlete prior to and following an injury. Well, the question arises, what happens if we combine a motor task and a cognitive task and make that something a little bit more representative of sport itself? Not often do we see an athlete sit down in the field and break out a computer and do a test. Rather, they're deciding on what play to make while they're 
making the play. And we feel a dual task, a combination of a cognitive and motor task may be the way forward. Uh, Nick Erdman, I'm going to highlight our doctoral students because I think they're outstanding here at the University of Virginia, um, is uh, pioneering one of these tasks right now. So again, we're trying to move the needle forward by really making a more pragmatic solution um, to detecting an injury that a lot of individuals are concerned of. Okay, thanks. Joe, we're going to uh, transition to you because you've done a lot of work in the area of imaging, particularly as it relates to entry or cruciate ligament injury. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you're currently doing this? So, um, we're, so I'll talk a little, a little bit about sensing to stay on, to stay on, our, our, on our sensing theme. Right. So we're, we're using wireless sensors in a bit of a different way to take a holistic approach to understanding changes in movement patterns that commonly um, uh, follow sports-related injuries. So when the movement patterns change, when it's obvious, it's easy to see, like in the, in the, in the upper left. It gets more challenging when those movement pattern changes are, are more subtle. Unfortunately, those subtle changes can persist long after an athlete is returned to sports and for years and decades following, which predict future injury and future um, uh, disability. So we're using wireless sensors uh, on the strap to the uh, wrists, ankles, and low back to study movement patterns during physical activity and entering that data into uh, machine learning algorithms that are able to classify a person with an injury simply by how their limbs are moving relative to one another. So with a fairly high degree of accuracy, we can tell not only if an athlete has had an ACL tear, but which limb has been reconstructed simply by their interlimb movement variability. So it's difficult to see because athletes are moving fast, and they're moving in a way, and they're perceiving that they're, that, that they're feeling fine. So here is, a, is, is, is an output demonstrating that our athletes with ACL tears have very high classification accuracy, whereas our healthy athletes without, uh, without any injury are confusing the machine learning algorithms. They can't classify them yes or no. So when we think about this, that what happens when an injured athlete and their movement patterns start to confuse our machine learning algorithms, what that means is that they can no longer be distinguished from a healthy in individual, healthy athlete with no prior injury. So this is an example of how we can use data science and advanced algorithms to make safe return to sport decision making and track an athlete over a long period of time by whether or not their movement patterns are healthy or not. Thanks. So, Kelly, you know, football players wear a lot of extra equipment that increases the exercise load and generates heat, and their uniforms cover a large portion of their body, which prevents the evaporation of sweat, which is the major cooling mechanism during exercise. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the techniques that you're using to lower the risk of heat-related injuries? So we start with athlete education. Um, heat illness is a, a continuum, and one of the ways to prevent it, in addition to acclimatization, is through hydration. So we start by teaching them how to stay hydrated and how to know if they're hydrated. Um, simple things like weighing in and out before and after practice. For every pound they've lost, we advise them to replace with 20 ounces of fluid. And we use urine-specific gravity in addition to urine color charts to look at the concentration of urine based on their specific gravity score, we'll give them a, a red, yellow, or green indicator of they need to drink this much more. So we were hydration testing last night at snack for football. If anybody was dehydrated then, we'll be testing again at lunch today to make sure they're ready for the game today. 
The other thing that we're doing to look specifically at core temperature um, is a, a internal sensor. So all of the first-year football players and transfer students swallow this sensor um, for the first 14 days of practices and summer conditioning. And then we program the calibration number into this recorder, and our staff walks around. We walk up to the player, and we hit read, um, and it tells us what their core temperature is. Because the, the difference in heat exhaustion and heat stroke is core temperature. Heat stroke is when you hit 104 degrees Celsius, whereas heat exhaustion is below that. The other, um, heat, sorry, heat exhaustion is below that. The other um, objective thing we can look for is CNS function. So if they're acting confused, even if their temperature is below one or four, then we'll, we'll pull them and start cooling them. Um, and so we'll be doing this on the sideline of the game tonight. We've got a few upperclassmen who have shown us they run hot and so we continue to monitor them throughout the season until the weather cools off. Thank, thanks, Kelly. So um, we can also use sports science in, in the area of, of prevention so, um, and also use it in determining how an athlete can return to sport. So, Jake, you talked a little bit about concussion in the 10-day recovery process. How do, you, how do you determine when the athlete's ready to return to the field? Yeah, so uh, first off, uh, one of the things that I'll be the first to say is you cannot prevent a concussion. A concussion is going to occur. If it doesn't happen inside sport, it will happen outside of sport. And it's most commonly concussions occur away from the playing field. Uh, but at the University of Virginia, we're working with companies such as BioCore in order to develop new technologies such as this mouth guard, uh, which actually encompasses an accelerometer to tell us the velocity of which and the magnitude of which an athlete's being hit uh, during a concussive event. Now, the fun thing about these is they're indistinguishable from any other mouth guard that our athletes wear. In fact, some of them have been thrown away. Uh, so with that, that's a... Uh, luckily, they surface later, but it's a $1,500 mistake. Uh, so with that being said, um, they're very fancy. They have UVA colors and the V and cross savers there. But one of the things that these accelerometers tell us is, again, the magnitude of the impact. Now, one of the things that I want you to take away from this is there's no threshold. The athlete may have a concussion uh, at a very low magnitude hit or a very high magnitude hit. So what we're working with, again, with system engineering, the system of, uh, Center of Applied Biomechanics on is a way to uh, equip athletes and use uh, radio frequency IDs or a different type of sensor in order to equip our athletes to track their patterns on the field to almost create an alert system. Think about your car alert system to say, if you see an athlete coming or if you don't see an athlete coming, uh, and imagine these two little lines. Here you see a blue line and a green line. And as soon as these two lines interact uh, at a particular distance apart, the athlete will get uh, a, a vibration on their wrist or on their forearm to say, hey, you need to protect yourself. You need to clinch up. Now, this isn't going to change the game. Besides, the athlete will flex really quick before they get blindsided, which unfortunately, not only concussions occur, but along the more catastrophic injuries may occur as well, as well resulting in paraplegia, quadriplegia, et cetera. So in terms of what we're doing to care for our athletes here at the University of Virginia, first off with uh, Kelly Pugh here, we could not do this protocol without the assistance of our certified athletic trainer. We have a, trainers, we have an amazing sports medicine staff, and we're happy to collaborate and make this system work to better care for our athletes. It is a a relationship that's been developing well over six years uh, in terms of concussion management. So with this, um, as I mentioned earlier, we do a pre-injury assessment. We call it a baseline assessment where our athletes, again, complete that computerized neurocognitive test, impact, a balance assessment, 
but also we uh, administer a series of patient-reported outcome measures such as a symptom inventory, the depression inventory, and some other health-related uh, questionnaires. After a concussion, so within about 72 hours of injury, again, this is if the athletes are considering if the athlete's traveling or not, our athletic trainers assist us by administering a symptom inventory and depression inventory daily, if not every other day. Now, during the initial 72 hours, our athletes, along with their physicians and athletic trainers, determine do they need academic adjustments so they can go back to the classroom or to make the decision if they need to refrain from the classroom. If they do go back to the classroom, our athletes can be equipped with a letter, a very uh, high technology, a piece of paper, that says, uh, this athlete's had a concussion. They have these symptoms. Can you make these modifications to the classroom, such as dim the lights or assist the athlete in printing out materials so they can attend the class and not fall behind in their studies while not making their symptoms worse? Following uh, when an athlete reports no further symptoms, concussion-related symptoms, the athlete will partake in light exercise on a stationary bike, on a treadmill, and our athletic trainers oversee this. If the athlete completes that light exercise with no further symptoms, they'll return to our staff in order to complete that same battery of tests. We call it our symptom-free assessment. So again, uh, this is an example of some of the data that we retrieve for our cognitive test, our balance assessment, as well as our symptom report. If the athlete's performing within pre-injury levels, so it's a very individual specific protocol because we know that one athlete will perform very differently than another athlete, then we'll progress them or the physicians and the athletic training staff will progress them through uh, further exercise and to make a full uh, and safe return to play. Uh, if the athlete takes a little bit longer to recover, let's say they pass our 10-day threshold uh, when an athlete typically experiences symptoms here, we'll uh, have them do a little bit more structured physical activity to see if we can pr provoke symptom recovery. Uh, so again, this is a protocol that we've been doing for the last six years, and it, it's, I think it's gone very well. And it, we, it would not be possible without collaboration and cooperation by our athletic trainers and, of course, the athletes. Great. Thanks, Jake. So, Joe, you and your colleagues have developed a very innovative return-to-play program called LEAP. Um, you want to tell everybody a little bit about that? Yeah, thanks. So uh, about six years ago, we started a, a um, comprehensive, thorough evaluation program for patients who are recovering from anterior cruciate ligament reconstruction surgery. It's a program that everyone who has their knee ligaments reconstructed at UVA comes and sees us at four and six months after their operation to give spot checks on their muscle function to inform therapy progress and return to sport decision-making timing and, and, uh, and so on. So we recommend, uh, 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 we do repeat exams as needed until they're, until they're passing these tests and we recommend annual exams after a, a reconstruction. So they do a series of isolated strength tests for hamstrings and quadriceps, balance, endurance, and hopping tests. Everyone gets a, gets a, 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 a summary report that outlines all of the, all of the uh, evaluation metrics that we, have, that we have measured. So you can see here, this is what a healthy person would look like, and we uh, code them as green light, yellow light, red light, based on how symmetric they are. So symmetry matters, and it's a, that's the metric that's used to make decisions in, um, with, with knee-injured athletes. So you can see here is a person with, uh, with an ACL tear about six months after their surgery, and, and, and the tank isn't quite full, so they're going to get red lights, which is going to inform the next stage in their therapy and when it's safe for them to, to return to sports. Thanks. So, Sue, you, we've talked a little bit about treatment and return to sport, but uh, there's some suggestion that some of these devices might actually be used to help prevent injuries. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, 
So this is really the, per, the, the future <clears throat> of what we're trying to do. Joe described a really great scenario with which you um, are using these sensors to kind of identify um, when somebody is no longer considered to be injured. And so we kind of want to use the same type of sensors and metrics to identify when somebody specifically might have changed and gone from a healthy situation to a very subtle change that would pick up where they might actually become injured. So this uh, funny little um, cartoon is kind of what we oftentimes will rely on now. We expect the, the athlete to tell us when they're not feeling well, and we all know sometimes how that's perceived. And, you know, when Jake was talking about, you know, whether or not people t uh, report all their symptoms, they don't want to be perceived as the person that's complaining about somebody, something. Um, so essentially we're taking this information and kind of tracking it with our, our whether or not an injury occurs. And essentially we want to be able to pull somebody for a, a, a rep um, a day, you know, or a certain period of time so that we can make sure that they're ready to go 100% when game time comes. Um, a lot of our, um, our injury surveillance and, and really what we're doing is very important for athletics and obviously winning games and things like that, but it's also really important for military participation. And, you know, we want people to be ready when they're ready to go. And, um, you know, so on the field and ready. So we're trying to figure out, again, with the machine learning as to when these slight inflections might occur, and then hopefully we can have a day of rest or, you know, when Mike is talking to the coach or Kelly is talking to the coach of sitting somebody for this day, it doesn't mean that they're on the injury list for the rest of the week. It just means that that particular person. So we have a precision medicine type of a, approach where we're taking something specific to that person and hopefully making sure that that person is going to be closer to 100% when it comes time to be needed. Thanks, Sue. So we've talked a little bit about the process of sensing and, and injuries and injury prevention and treatment, but athletes are really interested in the competitive edge, and that's one of the things that we're interested in as well. So, Mike, can you talk a little bit about how you take the data and, and use that to provide a competitive edge? Um, I think kind of hit on it. Um, our competitive edge is, is informed decision-making. Uh, I think that's what all of this data information provides us. It provides us to kind of go through this process where we are able to measure uh, what we know are the demands of our sport. But in addition to that, there are other processes that we have in place to look at what are the degrees of freedom from an orthopedic standpoint. So what, from an exercise selection standpoint, can this athlete tolerate from a training standpoint? so that we choose the right exercises that are not going to create more microtrauma to a joint. So one person in our group may be able to squat, the other person may not be able to just based on the structure of their hip. So we have to change a different modality for that person to still elicit the same physical quality that's necessary for them to be successful in basketball. So having this understanding of what the demands of the sport are, and what the limitations or restrictions of our athletes may be, we can start to plan um, and prepare our athletes through periodization, planning obviously our weight training, but also planning our practice structure, things of that nature. Um, and what you hopefully have happen, if you do it right, is that you perform. So at the, the end goal of all of those things and collecting this data is that you have availability of your athletes, so you're reducing, reducing injury risk, so they're there to practice every day, to play every one of your games. Um, but you also have this thing of uh, acute readiness, which obviously Kelly alluded to before, which is if we've done the right things, we've had periods of time where we've given them max recoverable volume and intensity, so we've built more robustness, but we've also had periods where it's minimum effective dose so that they are optimally ready 
to be able to recover and play on game days. So, I mean, I, I think that's where most of the competitive advantage comes from is that we are taking this data and we are making smart decisions as to how we construct our overall training process, both from a technical tactical standpoint in terms of what coaches are doing from practice planning, but also what we as strength conditioning coaches are doing in terms of modifications in the weight room if they come in and are not ready to absorb a particular training stress on that day. Um, so you'll see here, you know, periodization, hopefully we have planned. And this is just kind of an uh, illustration of, of a couple training weeks. And you can see that there's an undulation there. And the question is, did we meet that undulation that we wanted to have over that training period? Did we, from what we can predict in terms of what training loads need to be, did we stay and adhere to what that should have been? And then there's the context to that. So the next one is a uh, actual practice. So obviously there's a certain volume of work that we want to accumulate to prepare them for a particular game. But not all practices are created equal to a game. So we need to make sure that there are segments in that practice that are actually very specific to what the demands are to the game. And a lot of times that's an intensity. So from that particular practice, you can see that one of those segments where that big red spike is up there was the segment that we were trying to actually stimulate very specific game demands. Um, and then that little red line is a, another thing that I'm going to come to this group at some point. I'm playing with an equation for tendon load to see if there is a specific amount of jumps, change of directions, other things that correlate to spikes and, and tendinopathies and other things. So that's why I'm glad that these guys are up here. All right. um, and then as it relates to force plates, that one at the bottom, you know, the, the level of specificity we get to with our athletes, you know, we have them do this thing that's called a counter-movement jump on a force plate, and based on percentile rank of our cohort of all of our athletes, there's a certain graph we want you to look like. This particular athlete uh, is lacking an eccentric rate of force development and peak power. So from a training perspective, I would change their program in such a way that we are targeting these particular qualities so it prepares them for basketball. So you know, that's what I think the informed decision-making allows us to do from actual training standpoint. And you, you have a follow-up question, don't well, you? you slide there. <laughs> Not on my list, but go ahead. Talk um, a little bit about what you see yeah, in the future but of this. Obviously, you guys have heard all of this information, all this data, machine learning. So the future is this information is going to be able to predict. We're going to be able to prepare athletes in such a way in terms of structuring our practices. But I think the one thing we'll always have to do is that we deal with human beings, and there's a science to that. So as coaches, we're going to have to interact with them a certain way, no matter what the data says. Um, but these wearables are going to end up being this big, and it's going to provide us an opportunity to be able to predict what a practice, what a season should look like to have better outcomes. Great, thanks. So we've talked a lot about uh, team sports. Jay, you've done some really interesting stuff with individual sports. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the projects you have going on. Sure. So um, one of the things that we're working a lot with is distance runners. And um, we've been working with a, a company called RunScribe, which um, sells a commercially available sensor that can be attached to the shoe. And that um, sensor doesn't require you to be running with a phone or with any other type of um, uh, device on you. So it's literally, you know, the size of about a quarter and a little bit thicker than that. But then uh, it's going to collect measures on every step they take during that run. And then when they get back and they are within range of their phone, 
the data gets transferred to their phone, and then from their phone it goes to the company's website, and then the, uh, for our research purposes, we can then pull it off the, the back of their, their website. And we can um, look at measures across entire uh, distance runs. So um, for example, the types of measures we're interested in are about how much they're loading through their lower limb, how much their foot is moving while it's on the ground, so thinking about like pronation of the foot um, and how the, f the position of the foot when it hits the ground. Um, and also what we call spatiotemporal measures, which are really about how long is the foot on the ground and how long is it not on the ground during running. And you know, we can, across um, those different measures, get a, a training load um, estimation. So what you see up here um, on your left um, is an individual who ran the Virginia Beach Half Marathon while they were enrolled in one of our, our studies. So we were able to measure every step that they took during that half marathon. And the picture up there shows their step length uh, during the basically four quarters of that half marathon. And you can see that their step length decreased dramatically in the last quarter of, of that race. So you know, we can use that type of information to help them you know, train for, for their next um, race. On the uh, right, you see the case of, you know, um, we get um, recreational athletes who are running and some of them have children, and how do you negotiate that? So we see a lot of um, women that run with strollers, and we wanted to take a look at how does the... Men. There are men, yes. Yes, there are. Okay. And um, this, uh, this, this particular data is from, from a woman. Um, but it, it shows, you know, did her mechanics change while running the exact same course with a stroller and without a, uh, um, a stroller. And uh, what we're doing right now is um, we're working with the UVA cross-country teams and we're having um, the cross-country athletes wear these sensors on two of their long runs each week and we're tracing them over um, the course of the season. And um, what we hope to be able to do then retrospectively is to go back and look at these measures in comparison to their meet performance and also to their um, injury development over the, the course of the season. Thanks. So, Joe, you mentioned a little bit about muscle imbalance when you looked at the LEAP program, but muscle balance is important for performance as well. Uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the imaging things that you're doing to... Yeah, absolutely. So, we have studied three-dimensional muscle volumes using hundreds of rapidly acquired MRI images and a artificial intelligence-based shape modeling technology to render these three-dimensional color maps of lower body muscles. So in these color maps, they're, they're coded based on how much larger or blue and smaller or red each of these athletes is versus a non-athlete comparative database. So yellow is similar to healthy non-athletes, blue is bigger, red is smaller. This is our UVA track sprinters. So you can see a pattern of muscle volume distribution that makes these athletes faster than other non-athletes. So it's a muscle uh, volume distribution pattern. All right. We can also use this knowledge of where muscles need to be bigger to make somebody faster or a more agile runner or a, or a higher jumper and take our current athletes and make them better athletes. So this is an example of a baseball player who has this pattern of muscle volume distribution, blue up top, 
red down, uh, down at the bottom, and it makes sense to be smaller down here because that's a part of your body that has to move fastest when you're running. So it should be smaller and lighter. So if we put the same athlete who is now larger than a, than a non-athlete, put them up against our sprinter database, we can start to identify and target specific muscles that should be larger in order to make this already good athlete a faster athlete. We can also apply this technology to uh, patients recovering from ACL reconstruction. So it wouldn't be difficult for me to tell you that, that this person's left knee has been injured because the left side muscles are more red or smaller. What's alarming is the fact that after she was told that she was discharged from physical therapy and ready to return to unrestricted physical activity, she still remains smaller on this side. This is an example of where this athlete could have used a scan technology to better inform her therapy and safe return to, uh, to discharge from sport. Uh, this technology is something that's been, that's been um, commercialized through a small biotech startup so we can start to bring this technology to, uh, to, to athletes and patients. Thank you, Joe. So we're about done. I've got one more question, and then uh, I'm going to read a uh, quote uh, from Carla Wim Williams. But we've really only scratched the surface. We've talked a little bit about monitoring and injuries and, and muscle, but there's a lot of sports science going on in the area of nutrition, in the area of psychology, in the area of exercise physiology, and areas that I haven't even mentioned that we just didn't have time to talk about today. But with all of this monitoring going on, you know, it raises some other concerns about, you know, invasion of privacy and things like that. So, Jay, can you talk a little bit about some of the issues associated with athletes being continuously monitored? Sure. I, I think that, you know, this is definitely something that we always need to consider the, the humanistic side of monitoring. Um, and there are issues of privacy. So when we look at, you know, what are the differences between monitoring athletes while they're participating in practices and games versus monitoring them when they are not um, participating in practices and games and um, that is something that I think we all need to be thinking about when we are looking at, like, do you want your car insurance company to know what times of the day you're driving your car? Because if you don't drive your car late at night, you can get cheaper insurance, right? But then there, there are issues like that that get into, um, you know, where does monitoring stop um, and people's private lives begin? There's also things about data ownership. You know, at the professional levels, there's a... Um, as the collective bargaining agreements are being negotiated between the players' associations and the, um, the leagues, um, that issue of who owns this data is very important. Um, and I think the other thing that comes into the play is, um, are these monitoring data, are they health records or are they performance records for, for support? And then if they're considered health records, then all of the HIPAA um, uh, requirements come in in terms of protecting that data um, for individuals. So there definitely are ethical uh, concerns that we have to be thought of um, as we're able to measure people um, essentially all the time. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to put my reading glasses on because I don't want to misquote Carla. So this is a, a quote from Carla Davis. Um, and it's... it's I mean, Carla Williams, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know Carla. Carla Williams. And um, the, uh, 
The quote is basically, the University of Virginia Athletics Department, Department is partnering with kinesiology, statistics, engineering, and others to promote the development of safer and more effective training and coaching methods through collaborative research and data collection. This pan-university project is designed to improve the health and safety of athletes, compete, com create competitive advantages for teams and individuals, and position the University of Virginia as a leader in sports science, athlete development, and team performance. Key members from each of the participating units have formed a committee that will process proposals from coaches, faculty, staff, and or student athletes and assign teams of researchers, data scientists, statisticians, and content experts to seek new levels of understanding, improved methods, and competitive advantages. Our hope is that collectively we can have a positive impact on the health and well-being of athletes and teams everywhere at every level. So at this point, I'd like to thank the panel for a very engaging discussion. Please thank them with me. Apologize to Carla Williams. Um, and we have a few minutes for questions and answers, so there are a couple of microphones that are being passed around, so please raise your hands if you have a question, and we'll see if we can answer them. Please. Hi, thank you. Uh, very interesting uh, discussion this morning. Thank you for that. Uh, my question relates to um, do you get on sideline automatic data feedback other than the core uh, temperature? Are you getting feedback on fatigue and or number of minutes played uh, that you can use actually during game time? Or is it more historical data that helps you say how long somebody should be performing? getting um, real-time feedback from the catapult units during games. Um, so it's more the, the eyebrow barometer uh, when they come off of, you okay? You, you know, do you need a snack? Do you need some Gatorade? Um, what do we need to do to, to help them recover when they come off? Um, and then cooling can help with recovery too. So even tonight we'll have cold towels on the sideline to help bring down temperature for guys that we are not monitoring temperature um, to help with increasing recovery in between plays. But in other sports they are. So in soccer, for example, the, both the men's and women's soccer team wear catapult during the game. There's somebody up in the coach's box that can monitor the catapult in real time and also monitor the video in real time. And through Bluetooth technology, they communicate with the coaches on the pitch and give them data in real time. So part of it, up until I think this year, the NCAA wouldn't allow that. But this year, I think the rules have changed because I know the soccer teams are doing that. And Mike, you can it's comment different about. per sport. Who knows how the NCAA makes these decisions, but basketball is not allowed, so we have to look at that, that data retrospectively because um, they feel like if you're using it, it could, it could provide a competitive, competitive advantage during the game, so you can't actually use it during the game. Yeah, I don't know why the NCAA would want to protect the safety and health of our athletes. But <laughs> it's just a different question. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah after about... 30, 35 years in the lacrosse goal, I'm really interested in concussions and want to talk about not just the big ones. I mean, the 25, 30 concussions I've had it worries me, but what really worries me is the, I don't know, 500 times that I took a rocket to the face and, you know, was just a little bit stunned. So what are you guys doing to sort of look at those subclinical concussions and, you know, particularly in terms of long-term effect, or is that something that you can even track at this point? 
So, you know, that's a great question. You know, during the last two or three years, the idea of subconcussive injuries has come into the conversation of this idea of uh, athletes may have a, a brain injury without any clinical symptoms. So one of the biggest challenges that we face right now, and this is a great question, is how do you define a subconcussive injury? What is it? It's almost any impact to the head, neck, or body that does not result in a clinical symptom. So uh, the research uh, is somewhat equivocal when it comes to the effects of subconcussive injuries where uh, there will be no change following participation in, say, high school sports for four years or even collegiate support, uh, sports without a diagnosed concussion, uh, where others do experience these deficits. And I think one of the biggest things that we can do is uh, it's a combination of uh, monitoring your athletes with the data that we do have, but also um, the, probably the number one or the most evidence-based intervention for caring for our athletes is the certified athlete trainer in the field and that open dialogue that the athlete uh, would have with, say, Kelly Pugh or Keith Thompson or um, uh, Jeff Boyers when they do experience uh, a, a slight change, right? And a slight change, you know, I have had a headache for a little while, but it, it's a really difficult uh, issue to face. We do have, uh, we mentioned a few of the studies that we're doing right now with concussion. Uh, we have other studies using advanced neuroimaging techniques uh, such as PET, uh, in order to uh, look at any uh, residual inflammation associated with uh, concussive injury, but also potentially subconcussive injury that could be occurring. So in a long-winded way, I'm saying that it's a very difficult question, and we have a lot of great minds, not only at UVA, but also across the United States that are taking a look at this concept. And again, the difficult thing about this is, you know, how do you define a subconcussive injury? And once we're able to do that, then we can track it better. Is it just impacts to the body? Um, is it uh, the amount time amount of time on a field during a competition where we're expecting so many hits to occur? Uh, but until uh, symptoms start to manifest, or a, a qualified healthcare professional like a certified athletic trainer can say, you know, what they they seem a little um, uncoordinated right now, or they have that uh, glazed look or a vacant stare. Uh, we're not going to pursue that care of that individual. Uh, but as uh, Kelly alluded to, it's the eyebrow test or the between-the-eyes test where um, that's going to be one of the first steps to better care for those individuals suspected of having ill consequences of uh, subconcussive injuries. For those of us uh, here who are, I guess you would classify as recreational athletes, still able to compete at some level at some age, what advice or suggestions or practical tips would you give? We don't have access to, to, to this type of technology, fascinating as it is, but what advice would you give us to help us continue to improve from where we're at to where we really want to go? Well, I'm going to let the panel handle that in a second, but I am going to say you do have access to a lot of the technology right here on your wrist, and uh, they're, they're, they're getting more and more sophisticated all the time, so um, I'm going to let my colleagues yeah, there, talk. There are a lot of commercially available devices that people have right now, and people are getting much more attuned to their metrics. And so if you have, you know, like the uh, Apple makes something that you can put inside your shoe, um, you know, their watch technologies, some of the wristbands and things like that, and if you you know, are uh, looking at your information and, you know, we talk a lot about imposed demands and trying to mix it up and, and stress the body in such a way that we're going to respond positively, cardiovascularly-wise, muscularly-wise, and, and things like that. And it gets to a point where you just don't want to go downhill. And that's, you know, 
what happens after a while. But the um, but but you can see those things, you know, like by using your own metrics and becoming attuned to what is happening. And if there is something that is, you know, altering, um, you know what your things are are kind of looking at and when you see changes a lot of the watches will do heart rate variability and other things that are coming into and measuring other physiological effects as opposed to just the cardio uh, the uh, musculoskeletal types of things so learning more of what you are then you can kind of make determinations based on changes that you may see in some of the metrics that are getting spit out and as I mentioned, one of the things that, you know, Carla's vision with athletics is that we do this for athletes of all ages. So obviously we'll have a focus on enhancing a competitive edge for UVA, but the data that we collect on competitive athletes will translate to young kids as they're developing and to older exercisers and athletes because the principles are still the same. We have time for one more question. Yeah, last question. Right here. Okay. Uh, yes, one of the speakers brought up the uh, role of ingestibles to manage and monitor performance real time. Uh, given the pace of technological change, uh, I can rapidly foresee in the future that the uh, future is not injury prevention, but real time performance enhancement. So the coaches could stimulate Jordan Mack later tonight when he's the designated blitzer on a play and hit his heart rate and fast twitch muscle fibers to give him a tenth of a second advantage to get to the quarterback. What is the state of discussion, if any, around this change? Because it's coming. I don't know that anybody's going to approve us using tasers from the sideline. <laughs> um, but it certainly it does... Um, bear the question of, of how do we create, you know, superhumans and with the, all the genetic data um, and the, the different um, advances in, in gene monitoring or gene modification, um, you know, what does that do for athletes of the future? And then what can we do to, to amp up our own um, performance? And, and what are people going to allow us to do to them, you know? We do meet resistance sometimes from a student athlete taking their pill. Um, you can't cut it in half. You can't cut it in half. <laughs> it is really big. It is sometimes hard to swallow, and it's always their choice. Um, but I tell them that if I can't check their core temperature this way, um, the alternative <laughs> is much less pleasant. Um, and so from a health and safety perspective, um, that's how I have gotten a lot of buy-in for this particular technology. No, sir, they are not reusable. <laughs> all right. I'd like to thank you all for your attention. I'd like to thank the panelists. Um, We'll stay around for a little while afterwards. If any of you want to stay and ask us individual questions, we're happy to stay for a few minutes. Uh